you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. This morning's sermon is going to be a little different, but before we get into it, let's make sure we remember where we are. We're in the Lord's Prayer. Jesus' disciples have asked him, teach us how to pray, and so he does. One of the first things that Jesus does is he teaches them how not to pray. He says, don't pray like the hypocrites. Don't pray like these people who pray to get attention drawn to themselves so that they can be praised by men. Rather, pray in secret so that you can be seen by your Father in heaven and receive his reward. Then he says, don't pray like the pagans who think that they have to say and do special things in order to get God's attention. Rather, pray like somebody who knows that they are in fact a child of God. Pray like you know that you are being heard by God. And then Jesus begins his positive instruction on how to pray. He says, pray then like this. What we saw in the first week there was that he teaches us to pray to him as a father, to go to him as a child. Last week we saw, hallowed be your name. That is, we are to pray that the name of the Lord would be holy by all people in all nations. And we saw that God has told us that we, the church, are the answer to that prayer. We go out and we proclaim his holy name to the ends of the earth on mission for him. And this week we arrive at our third Godward petition. We pray that his kingdom come. Actually, the second Godward petition your kingdom come. Let's go ahead and read the entire Lord's Prayer. I'll read, you follow along. Verse 9, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is God's holy, inerrant, inspired, and infallible word. Amen? Amen. I don't know if there's anybody in this room old enough to remember sitting around the radio, listening to the radio hour at night. Probably not. I don't want to date anybody. But it used to be that people were accustomed to sitting and listening for a very long time with no visual stimulation. They just had to use the power of their ears in order to pay attention with their brains. It's a lost art and a lost skill. But you should know that it was very common for thousands of years, as a matter of fact. The people who sat and listened to God's word in churches in the first century, the book of Hebrews, for example, they would have sat and listened as their pastor got up and read the entire book of Hebrews to them on a Sunday morning. We're going to try to practice a little bit of that this morning. I was struck by studying Jesus as he was teaching uh, about his kingdom throughout his ministry by how little uh, his didactic instruction, that is his teaching, how little of it was kind of just propositional truths, him just communicating clearly and plainly with certain propositions of A plus B then C, that sort of thing. Rather, the majority of Jesus' teaching on the kingdom came in the form of parables and stories And I think that there's a reason for that. Some of the reasons why Jesus told parables was to 
keep people from understanding the truth. But as you saw from the scripture that Allison read this morning from Matthew 13, Jesus also told parables to help his disciples understand. That's why he asked them after he told the parables, have you understood? And they said, yes. So in order to help you understand what Jesus means when he teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, I have a story for you this morning. This story is a story of epic proportions, but it cannot be found on the pages of any novel. This story is a true story, but you will not find it in the pages of any textbook. It's too true to be studied in that way. And the story begins before the beginning. Before there was anything to rule over, there existed a great king. The king, desiring to communicate the fullness of his glory, created what you now know today as the universe, a kingdom for him to rule. In a tiny corner of that universe, the king began to speak. He uttered a decree that life should come into existence, and so it did. The king brought forth trees to applaud his majesty, flora and fauna to praise his name and animals to give him glory, celestial bodies to move at his good pleasure. The king desired to further broadcast the glory of his own nature, and so he created man. Male and female, he created them in his own image and likeness, and he loved them very much. The king set man as ruler over this tiny corner of his kingdom known as earth, and he issued a decree that they, humans, should rule as kings and queens on the earth in his stead. The king and queen exercised their kingdom authority by first naming every plant of the ground and every beast of the field and every bird of the air and every fish of the sea. The great king of heaven gave man all that he could ever want or need. He gave them a land lush with life and full of his glory. Morning and night, the stars sang, the sea roared, the valleys echoed, and all was well in the kingdom of earth. It was at peace, and the king and queen perfectly reflected the glory of their creator, the great king of heaven. But as is so often the case in stories like these, a challenger soon came crawling. The challenger was a creature. And this creature desired to sit in the place of the creator. This creature was not content to be a subject in the kingdom of the king. Rather, he wanted to rule as the king himself. The creature was incensed to see man ruling as the vice regents of the great king in heaven. And so, he crafted a scheme to remove man from their high position. He approached the king and queen as they walked through the garden. And he spoke to them in the form of a serpent. Has the king really spoken thus, he asked, attempting to undermine the decrees of the great king? And with this question, the seed of doubt was planted in the mind of man. Then the creature spoke again. The king has, in fact, not really said so-and-so and such-and-such. The subjects of the great king were, in this very moment, persuaded to commit treason against their sovereign. And so they did. They broke the only law in the land that the king had given them, and they rebelled against their sovereign. 
The great king was grieved at this rebellion, at the idea that his children would reject his righteous rule over them, but he was not surprised. The king, in his great and infinite wisdom, knew that the kingdom would be assaulted even before he created it. Why did he create it then, you may ask? Well, that's a question that only the king can answer for himself. After this great fall, as it has come to be called, the kingdom of earth fell into great corruption. What was once a joy became a burden. What was once a pleasure became a pain. A world of life decayed into a deluge of death, destruction, and decay. The king and the queen were removed from their thrones and cast into the wilderness, away from the garden they once ruled, and out of the glorious presence of the great king. The kingdom of earth has been occupied by the enemy of all that is good since that terrible day. And for this reason, men now move in darkness. But what of the serpent? The dragon? Well, as soon as that great deceiver saw that the king and queen had fallen from their thrones, he laid claim to their authority. The angel of light, the snake of Eden, the fallen star of heaven, he goes by many names. But he is known to us today as the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this fallen world. And so the prince and his minions took control of the kingdom and have been ruling over it from that day until our very own. But all was not lost in the kingdom of earth. Even as the great king of heaven cast Adam and Eve into the horrors of the fall, he gave them a promise that he would one day redeem them from it. Saying this, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And I will put you in between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. As the story develops, the kingdom of this world continues to degrade. It would seem to those studying the story that the kingdom of earth was beyond hope. The great king was not ignorant of the decline. He saw from a distance, and yet closer than you might imagine, how bad things were getting for the sons of Adam in the fallen kingdom. He was aware that the wickedness of man was great in the kingdom and that every intention of the thoughts of the heart of man was only evil continually. This grieved the great king. And so in a, a great act of his righteous judgment, he raised the kingdom to the ground. He laid waste to the world with a massive flood. The torrents of the king's wrath washed over the face of the earth, destroying everything and everyone tainted by the sin of rebellion against his royal rule. Everyone except for a single family, the family of Noah. This family, spared from the wrath of the great king, was meant to serve as the new Adam, the new Eve, a replacement for the covenant head that was previously lost to evil. Alas, this Adam was no better. The stain of sin lived deep in the sons of man, and every one of them seemed guiltier than the last. The great king knew that if the kingdom were to ever be saved, it would have to be saved by something other than cleansing. Neither fire nor water would purify the kingdom of earth. Indeed, rather than washing the old kingdom clean with his wrath, the king would have to plant the seed of a new kingdom 
in the heart of the old, dead, and dying kingdom, and he would have to let it grow up from within the midst of that fallen world. And so he did. One of the subjects of the dark kingdom, a subject of one of their false kings, was named Abram. But for the sake of brevity in our story, we'll simply call him Abraham. The king called his subject Abraham out of the shadows and into his marvelous light. He spoke to the subject and this is what he said. I will give this land to your seed and through your seed all the nations of this fallen earth will be blessed. With Abraham came the beginning of the kingdom within a kingdom. The name of this earthly outpost of heaven came to be called Israel. And through the sons of Abraham and the seed of Abraham... The coming kingdom was being built. As the story progresses through the centuries, we read of dust-ups and skirmishes between the prince of the power of this fallen world and the great king of heaven. The prince of the power of the air would raise up earthly kings to go to war with the king of heaven. One such story involves Pharaoh, the supposed god-king of ancient Egypt, who had taken the holy nation of Egypt excuse me, the holy nation of Israel captive and kept them in bondage for centuries. The earthly king raged against the great king of heaven, standing in defiance of the king and his chosen one. But as is always the case in this story, nations may rage, but the earth melts when the king of heaven lifts his voice. And lifts his voice he did. The great king of heaven spoke through the mouthpiece of his servant Moses. The great king of heaven sent pestilence against that tiny pharaoh. The great king of heaven sent pestilence against the tiny pharaoh king. He sent flies and darkness and all manner of terror. He turned the river red with blood. He took the lives of all of the firstborn sons of Egypt. And finally, the great king rescued his not-so-great nation, carrying them through the waters of wrath. He divided the sea and led them through it. He made the water stand up like a wall. The great king led his ragged citizens through the wilderness for decades. He endured their fickle hearts, their stiff necks, their sour sins. He promised them a land that was not their own. And he led them to it. And he gave it to them as an embassy to be an outpost of heaven in this fallen world. He called on his people He demanded that they be distinct from all of the other kingdoms of the earth that had not been chosen and rescued by him. The king called on his subjects to be holy, even as he was and is holy. This kingdom was meant to be a brightly burning light in a world of sin and shadows. The great king promised the people of Israel that he would be their king. He promised that his rule would be just, that his government would be righteousness. And he spoke like this to his people. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. But the people of Israel saw the fallen nations around them. And they slowly grew to envy the visibility of their foreign kings. They saw their crowns, the thrones, the scepters. The people did not want a king in the sky. They wanted a king in the flesh. Their faith failed them. Once again, the subjects of the great king 
failed to listen to the voice of their sovereign, choosing instead to listen to the voice of Satan in the land. And so they demanded an earthly king. Speaking to one of his prophets of those days, the great king had this to say about the whole affair. They have rejected me from being king over them. It was a sad sight. The first king of the holy nation, Saul was his name. He fell like Adam and Noah before him. The second king as well, and the third. And the best of the kings gave the holy nation a hint of hope, but even they failed to image the king of heaven in their rule. Of the 42 kings that bore the crown of Israel, the great king found not even one who ruled in righteousness. The priests of the kingdom of Israel joined the earthly kings in their treason. They allowed profane worship, polluted sacrifices, strange fire, and unjust judgments to pollute the land. The prophets joined them in their downward descent. Rather than issuing the mighty king's decrees from heaven, they too took on the form of a serpent, acting as the mouthpiece of Satan. They proclaimed peace when there was none to be found. They spoke when the great king remained silent, and they remained silent when the law of the king demanded a word of righteousness from their lips. How could a new and better kingdom be cultivated in the earth as long as her rulers reigned in corruption in this way? As long as the priests remained derelict in their duties? As long as the prophets proclaimed lies? The magisterial offices of the kingdom of Israel had fallen into utter corruption. The citizens of Israel, the subjects of the great king, they languished in the land. When they were disciplined, they languished in a foreign land as the king disciplined them into exile. It would be unbecoming of a king to gloat, saying something like, I told you so. Nevertheless, the king did take the opportunity to remind his people of their sins, to remind them that they had rejected him as their sole king. And this is what he told them. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are all your rulers, those of whom you said, give me a king? But the great king of heaven did not leave his citizens without hope. You see, the great king of heaven was not only a mighty king, but a faithful one. When the king first cut a covenant with his people, when he entered into a relationship grounded in a promise with them, he said that he would be their king and that they would be his people. You should know, dear listener, that the king's promise is not easily broken. And so in light of his great faithfulness, the king sent word to his citizens and this is what he said. To you a child will be born. To you a son will be given, and the government shall be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The citizens of Israel were hopeful and happy to hear this word of promise from their king, even if they could only begin to grasp its meaning. And then... For a very long time, for what felt like forever, the kingdom was still. The great king of heaven was silent. 
the people were afraid. Had the king cut off communication with his embassy forever? Had he finally grown tired of his subjects raising up in rebellion against him? Had he grown inconsolably tired of the treason? Had he forgotten his promises? Or had he reneged on them like an earthly king might do? No, dear listener. Such was not the case. And so finally, after centuries of straining under pagan rulers and dreadful silence, the king of heaven spoke once more. His word came to the earth. His word dwelt amongst his people. The word became flesh. And the king came as a babe. This king was unique amongst all the other kings of the earth. He was completely sovereign, and yet he was wrapped in humble human flesh. He was utterly without sin, and yet he walked the earth like a son of Adam. The king came in weakness and vulnerability. On his head he donned the crown of humility. On his hands he bore the calluses of poverty. From his mouth came the perfect blend of grace and truth, light and heat, justice, love, and mercy. The king, or the son of the great king to be exact, did not come to this fallen kingdom of earth as a tourist, might visit the slums of India or the ghettos of Poland. He didn't come to merely observe the fallen kingdom of earth and all of its brokenness. No, the son had a mission from his father. He was sent to save his people. And so at the appointed time, the son began to herald the good news that the kingdom of his father was at hand. And he issued a decree, and this is what he said. The great king of heaven is a just king. He punishes sin and wickedness and corruption and will by no means let the sons of Adam go unpunished for their rebellion. Nevertheless, the great king of heaven is also a king of great mercy and grace. And so the offer is hereby made to the rebels in this land who have taken up arms against their sovereign. Today, if you would throw down your arms and abandon your rebellion, you will be readily and joyfully received into the coming kingdom of God. Clemency is offered you today in the spirit of peace and reconciliation. Your sins will be forgiven. Your transgressions will be forgotten. But be careful to take heed to this clarion call of mercy that you hear today. Do not delay The kingdom of my father is at hand. This fallen kingdom is on the verge of destruction. My father's axe is at the root of this world. And it is soon to fall. Everywhere the son of the king went, he said the same thing. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And as you might imagine... Dear listener, it was difficult for the citizens of Israel to accept that the son of the great king of heaven had come down to their fallen kingdom. So the son did many great and marvelous things to demonstrate his father's authority. 
He went to war with the powers of darkness. He clashed with the fall and all of its corruption. He healed the sick. And he gave the people a glimpse of what the king would do for the bodies of those who loved him. He cast out the demons to try to foreshadow the final victory over the prince of the power of the air that was soon to come. He quieted the winds and the waves to show off the splendor of his might and to highlight the king's complete and utter dominion in all the earth. Now you might imagine that the peoples of this fallen kingdom, the citizens of this broken world, that they would rejoice at the coming of this salvation, at the offer of such great grace. You might think that they would celebrate the Son for coming to gather His people into heaven. But you would be mistaken. Although many did receive Him, many, many more rejected His word of promise, His offer of hope, and His claims to heaven. You might suppose that the hearts of those shackled by sin would swell with love at the sight of their glorious Redeemer. But what happened was quite the opposite. Their hearts shrunk and shriveled and hardened against the king and his son. Eventually, after many previous failed assassination attempts on the son, the rebel forces of hell captured the king's son. In the black of night they seized him and they carried him before the fallen kings and authorities in the land. After capturing the son, they mocked him. They slapped his face. They spit upon his cheeks. They tore his back. And they laid upon him a crown of thorns. Rather than exalting him as the king of kings and the lord of lords, they hung him on a cross to die as an enemy of the state. They pierced his hands and feet and plunged a spear beneath his ribs. The citizens of this fallen kingdom had rebelled against their king many, many times before. They had transgressed his holy law more times than any man could count, but this was the greatest transgression of love that the world had ever known and has ever known since. As the son of the king hung dying on the cross, the minions of the prince of this world cackled and laughed and mocked. All of the demons of hell joined in on a great chorus of celebration. And they cried out to their ugly master, rejoicing that their mission had failed, that the kingdom would be theirs and that the darkness would prevail after all. And so there he hung between two criminals, abandoned, rejected, and despised by those he came to save. But there was more happening here in this scene than even those closest to the cross could see. And unfortunately, it only makes this tale of two kingdoms darker still. For on the cross, the son did something terrible, something amazing, something almost unbelievable, but it must be believed. The son took the king's wrath onto his own soul for the sake of the rebels of this fallen kingdom. 
He offered up his perfect righteousness to the king as a payment for the high treason of those rebels. And he took their sins onto his shoulders. Their treason became his treason. And his loyalty became theirs. In that very moment, there took place what men of God today call the great exchange. He who knew no sin or rebellion became sin that the citizens of this fallen kingdom might receive the righteousness of their king in heaven. As the sun lay dying, he called out in what must have been a soft voice because he could barely breathe. And he said three words. It is finished. With these words, the son ushered in the kingdom of God. And the son bowed his head and gave up his spirit. What kind of king is this? In case you didn't know, dear listener, this is not the way that kings of the ancient world or even kings of our modern world renew their kingdoms. The kings of this world crush their rebels with force. They kill their enemies. They save their friends. But this king, Jesus was his name, he was crushed to save the rebels in his kingdom. He was killed to save his enemies. And he was forsaken by his friends to save his people. For three days, the fallen kingdom was as black and bleak as Satan's heart. Hope was lost as hell rejoiced and the Messiah lay rotting in his grave. How potent is the tincture of death? Is it not the greatest weapon of sin? Is it not the ultimate armament against the goodness of God? Is death not the final word? Does it not always have the last laugh? The only thing it seemed that kept the great king of heaven at bay, that kept him from destroying all of heaven and earth for the sake of his own son, was his own just edict that all who sin must die. But the son of the king was not like the other sons of Adam. Although this Jesus came in the likeness of flesh. He knew not the stain of sin. And so on the third day, the great king of heaven lifted his son from the shadowy bowls of Sheol. By the working of his great might, he raised the Christ from death and he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. He placed him far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named, in every age that was and is and is yet to come. At this great resurrection, the prince of heaven, the second Adam, accepted his place as king. He donned his crown and he grasped his golden scepter. And all the angels of heaven cried out in one voice, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, 
Your God has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. Before this God King Jesus took his place as the highest ruler in the cosmos, he condescended once more. And he spoke to those who had followed him faithfully during his time in the fallen kingdom. The resurrected son spoke to this gang of ragtag followers, his students, disciples they were called, and he said many things. He rebuked them. He challenged them. He encouraged them. And finally, he commissioned them. The son told his followers that they were now to be his ambassadors, that he would use them as his agents in ushering in the kingdom of heaven on earth. He told them that he was granting them all authority, that is his authority, to go and proclaim the good news. Sin has been defeated. Death has been overthrown. The kingdom of God is at hand. He called on them to take this message of good news, this message of victory to the ends of the earth. He told them that they would be his royal ministers of reconciliation on the earth. He entrusted them with the message of reconciliation. And this is what he said. In Christ, the great king is reconciling the world to himself, not counting its trespasses against it. Therefore, said the son, You are my ambassadors, as if the great king of heaven were making his appeal through you. You are called to implore the nations on behalf of my name, be reconciled to the king. While the son was walking the earth, he told these disciples to pray for the coming of his father's perfect kingdom. And after his resurrection, he sent them out to proclaim that the kingdom had in fact begun to dawn and would soon shine with the full brilliance of the glory of heaven. The disciples obeyed. They went from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and even to the ends of the earth speaking boldly and arguing persuasively about the kingdom of heaven, first to the children of Israel and then to all the men of earth. And you, dear listener, you should know that this story is not nearly over. If you have cast aside your rebellion, if you have taken the king up on his offer of clemency, you are no longer a citizen of this fallen kingdom. Your physical address may link you to this fallen world, but your passport is stamped with a seal of heaven. You are a citizen of that great kingdom even if you are still a resident of this earth. So if this is you, then you no longer bear the name of your captivity. You have taken upon yourself the name of your Savior and King. You are called Christian. As such, you are called to carry out the same mission as Christ and his apostles. By the authority vested in you from the spirit of the King who lives in you, You are called to be about the business of making disciples of all nations, teaching them to trust the king, to love the king, and to obey him in kind. You're called to live carefully as citizens of heaven in this fallen land, 
you are called to be distinct from the peoples of the fall. Your life is meant to point them to the great king of heaven. Your final destination is at the end of a very narrow and treacherous road. The only way to pass through it is with much difficulty. The cares of this world will claw at your soul. The schemes of Satan will seem sweet to you while you journey to the promised land. The creature comforts of wealth will keep you feeling normal and welcome in this fallen kingdom. How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. For many of you, this means that entering the kingdom will be difficult beyond description, but not impossible. For all things are possible for those who belong to the king. One simply needs to trust the king like a child trusts its father. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter into it. Do not fret, my fellow Christians. Do not grow anxious while you wait. The king has forgiven you. He loves you. He will care for you. He is leading you and guiding you into his eternal kingdom of joy. He has given you everything that you need to make the journey. The map to heaven from this fallen world is simple and easy to read. It only bears one symbol. And the key tells you plainly what it means. Seek his kingdom and his righteousness above all else and soon you will find yourself in heaven. The king has told us that in these last days there will be times of trouble in the land. The rulers and authorities of this fallen kingdom are agitated. They are sour over their defeat. They have been disarmed and made a public spectacle of having been triumphed over by a bloody cross. And so what you must do now, dear listener, is cling to that rugged cross, even as you carry it on your back. The road to glory is potholed with suffering, but you must remember that all things work together for the good of those who love the great King of heaven. You live in a kingdom within a kingdom. Do you believe it? You should. You must. You should know that even now, as you listen to this very story, you are a visible expression of the kingdom of heaven on this earth. You are the gathered people of the new heavens and new earth. You sit now on sovereign soil of God's coming kingdom. You sing the songs of paradise. You gather with one voice to celebrate the majesty of the king. And you listen to his promises every week while you wait. You stand in a land of ruin, but the banner that you fly is not striped, nor is it star-spangled. The flag of the kingdom of heaven is crimson red. On the one side of the flag, you show the slain lamb of Judah, and on the other, the mighty lion. So, brother Christians, take up your arms against this present age. Lock your arms together as you march towards heaven in victory. And remember to pray for the fullness of the kingdom of heaven.
One day, perhaps when you are most tired and haggard from the journey, you will hear a trumpet blow. That trumpet will be accompanied by many loud voices in heaven and this is what they will say. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. In closing, you should know that I'm telling you a story from within a story. The end of the story is near, although how near, no one truly knows. The end of the story was told at the beginning, and so you might be tempted to think that the story has been ruined, but it hasn't. There is a vast difference between knowing the end of the story and experiencing it for yourself. The joy, the fear, the suffering, the glory. It will all be greater known to you in the days to come. And when you feel it, you will realize that nothing could have ruined it at all. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to do all the things that you call on us to do as faithful citizens in your kingdom. We pray that you would help us to love your rule and to obey it well. Amen.